I want to uh, say thanks for being a part of this. We are going to dig into spiritual warfare tonight. This Monday, depression, grief, trauma, and how those things impact a person during the holidays. Uh, Please pray about it if you can't make it. I understand, but please pray for God's favor on that event. And then Women's Christmas Party on the 11th. That'll be at my house. That'll be a blast for the ladies. They love that. And uh, tonight, fighting the good fight of faith. A New Testament theology of spiritual warfare. So I want to pray and ask God's grace. Lord, I love you and I thank you and I bless you. Your name is holy. It is good. And you, your son has the name that is above every name. Would you please teach us your ways, your heart, and the truth of the good fight that you've called us to and how we walk that out. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I've got some statements here, questions uh, that are going to function as a bit of a guideline. So tonight we're going to try to address the issue, who is the enemy? Who is the enemy? And so um, we'll walk through scriptures, and I will need you to engage on this um, because it is a bit of a challenge. So who is the enemy regarding a New Testament theology of spiritual warfare? And, and there's a lot of presuppositions behind this question. We, we have the presumption that God is the creator of all things. And all things means what? All things. Therefore, Satan must be a created being, right? So there's a lot of presuppositions like that. So let's dig in. Uh, the first scripture that I want you to pay attention to is from Isaiah 14. Now, uh, Jay, you and I have talked about hermeneutics. And that is the art, the science, the discipline of how do you interpret Scripture. You know, for example, uh, if it says in 1 John, no one who is born of God sins. That's literally what it says. No one who is born of God sins. Well, how do you interpret that? Now you're doing hermeneutics. How do you interpret it? Do you say, oh, that is literal literally, if you're born again, you don't sin. Well, then guess what? I must not be born again because I sin, right? And at that point, we have a huge, huge problem. And to theologically untangle it, you've got to do your homework. That's called hermeneutics, how you interpret it. For example, this is where a little Greek helps. No one who is born of God sins habitually. Ah, now it makes sense. But if you don't get that, you miss what that verse is about and things get really, really, really messed up quickly. So guess what? Isaiah 14 is a song. It's a taunt. You know what a taunt is, right? Taunting, that's actually, you can get a taunting foul in the NFL and I'll throw a flag because you were taunting the other team. Nanny, nanny, boo-boo, we beat you and we get a touchdown and we're better than you, nanny. Okay, that's taunting. Right? Sounds silly, but that's exactly what it is. This is a song that taunts Babylon. So if we're going to be true to the text, it's not about Satan. It's not. It's about Babylon and their wicked, evil rulers. Okay. And so now, hermeneutically, we, we have to own up to something. The scriptures are relatively quiet about the origin of Satan. 
We don't know. There's nothing explicit that says, this is Satan, he was born as this, this is his name, this is what he does, point blank, there it is. Boom, now we know, settled. It doesn't do that. What you have to do is you have to go, well, is it possible that in some of the prophetic writings, it talks about two things at the same time? You understand what prophecy is, right? Okay. Sometimes it, we, uh, the prophets will use a metaphor, and um, Isaiah chapter 1 says, come, come, let's reason. Let's reason with God. Let's work this thing out. And he says, though your sins are like scarlet, I'll make them white as wool. Is that literal? Are our sins like a color? And are we like wool and we, get, we can become clean? Or is he using a metaphor, an idea, to communicate a theological reality? Does this make sense? It paints a picture. It paints a picture. It alludes to, it's trying to get at something real that's hard to describe. Okay, so what if this taunt about Babylon has something spooling in the background and the prophet Isaiah is talking about one thing but alludes to another? It's like saying one thing and meaning another or two ideas running on the same track or the same trajectory. Watch what happens. How you have fallen from heaven, you star of the morning, you son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth. You who defeated the nations, like you were once this mighty conqueror, and now you're the one that's beaten. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven and I will raise my throne above the stars of God and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds I will make myself like the most high. It's a taunt of the king of Babylon. All right? So this is, you know, this is historically the case. That's history. Now what about the other track? Theology. Is this an allusion to something else? I think absolutely yes. I think this is an allusion to Satan. Absolutely um, here's how I, I can see that. Look at Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more cunning than any animal of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, As God really said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. And the serpent said to the woman, you certainly will not die for God knows that on the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will become like God, knowing good and evil. Jay, what is the relationship potentially, if any, between Genesis 3 and Isaiah 14? Asserting that he is at least equal with God because he's 
questioning what God said. Yeah, exactly. So you've got this idea that a lesser being, whatever that being is, Satan, the lesser being is trying to exalt itself above God. Right? I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Boy, that's an echo. I'm going to make myself like God. That's exactly what the serpent convinced Eve. If you do this, you'll be just like God. Okay. So we're stitching together some things. It's not explicit. It's implicit. It's hidden. It's echoed in the text that this is Satan. Now, it's interesting, by the way, that the serpent is described as an animal. You ready for something crazy? Probably had limbs. Climbing. A creature that can climb. Okay. Because during the judgment, it says, now on your belly you will crawl. And so prior to, it's been argued that the serpent perhaps is absolutely a beautiful and fascinating creature. And Satan is embodying this creature. So you have almost an example of demon possession, even in the garden. And that, that Satan is speaking to or through or is this serpent. Okay? So... Yep, that this is this is the idea that there's there's it's too easily integrated to ignore. This language of ascending to be like God or maybe even rise above God. And we ever see the serpent again after this sin? No. Not with it. Well, actually we do. Uh, he's described as the great serpent in Revelation. Yeah. And he's cast and down. Yeah. Yeah. It would be, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's, but again, it's, it's Sloan, it's, it's, a, it's imagery to try to get at the true nature of this very evil, evil creature. <laughs> No, it just says the devil. We don't know if he looked like a Mediterranean male, like a pure male. What's that? When he was talking to God, I'm thinking about other things. When he was talking to God about um, Job, you really don't know. It says he walks. He walks about like he has the legs of a man or the legs of an angel. You know, so. so this is really known. But, so were there no snakes? Before it's a great question and, and uh, unknown come from that <laughs> and, and by nature snakes are therefore evil we, we don't know but hey you're stitching together the ideas which is good yeah I've seen pictures of the snake in the garden of, of Eden with limbs yeah. Yeah. I've seen a cartoon of hey. this serpent hey Chris yes sir David I kind of also think seeing as how all the world would know about God and and Christ and also the devil or Satan uh, in the Asian cultures the serpent is usually a dragon it's a dragon mm-hmm. with with you know arms uh, with arms or really it's, it's four legs mm-hmm. but it's also a ser- a serpentine type 
Creature. Dragon, which yeah. is always considered to be the wise and uh, crafty uh, serpent. Because mm -hmm. it's also in Revelation, it, was, it talks about uh, the, uh, being a dragon. Yes, the great dragon. Yep, absolutely, David. That's good. That's good. So what we're doing, remember, we're working on who is the enemy. That's what we're trying to target, okay? So if there's allusions to Satan, and I believe there clearly is, that this person... Uh, is like a star of the morning, something beautiful, something fascinating, sun of the dawn, something bright and beautiful, and yet the ego is so profound that they want to rise up above above God. What's that? Well, and okay, Ezekiel twenty-eight. There we go. So, it has been argued if you add Ezekiel twenty-eight to this, by the way, which is about the king of Tyre historically king of tyre it applies that's the truth theologically it implies satan he's a cherub. yes in fact he's a cherub a cherub angel so this would explain why he didn't repel he was not repelled or in no way felt threatened by yeah. The appearance of Satan. Yeah. Yeah. Which is true today. Satan shows up in so many temptations that we don't realize. Yeah, you almost quoted, quoted the scripture. I thought you were going to remember. He shows up as an angel of light. Yeah. Which we would think is awesome. <gasps> wow. That's attractive. I like that. You know, come come teach us the gospel. Ezekiel 28. Um, uh, and bear with my typo on that one. I was racing through the, the day here. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, take up a song of mourning over the king of Tyre and say to him, This is what the Lord God says. You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. So whatever this creature is, wow, it's beautiful. You were in Eden. The garden of God. Boy, Jay, can you see how that fits here? Every precious stone was your covering. Whether it's some kind of jacket like the ephod that the high priest would wear with stones hammered into the gold or something like that. The ruby, the topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. Can you imagine this creature covered in precious stones? On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers... And I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. And you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. Wow. Wow. So the language uh, that you were the cherub who covers, are you familiar with that idea of covering? It's the idea that the holiness of God is so profound, you can't look at it. So you have to cover, you have to cover your eyes. And it's the, it's the concept of humility. It's the concept of 
the holiness of God is beyond anything we can imagine. Talk about a bright light that the only thing you can do is bow and cover. And so with these concepts, we get the idea that uh, uh, Sloan Satan at one point was somehow leading worship, somehow singing and, and aiding and guiding in created beings of heaven in the worship of Almighty God. And something that you're supposed to be humble with and covering, and yet, and yet, ego, arrogance, pride set in, and he tried to vault himself above God. Okay. Uh, let's look at these these couple of scriptures here. This is Job one to six. This is a tough one. Okay, Job one. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. It's like he's a man. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a fence around him in his house and all that he has on every side? Have you blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land? But reach out with your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will certainly curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not reach out and put your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Man, that's intense. To me, that's intense. All right, first pop, pop quiz, students. Who are the sons of God? <laughs> Anybody? Angels. Angelic beings. No. No, not fallen angels. No, sons of God. Yeah, and and we're going to hear some of that in like Revelation and things. Yeah. So where did they come to God? What's that? Where did they come? I have no idea. We could assume it's heaven, uh, unless it's some. Um, Yeah, it, and we want to create a timeline, right? And this is what's called eternity past, and where you have God, and there's nothing, and God speaks all things into existence, okay? And at some point in that process, and I'm not talking about the six days of creation, God created the spiritual realms, and that includes angelic beings in all their, in all their varieties. And at some point, we have the fall of Satan. This absolutely mind-bogglingly beautiful creature, singer, worship leader, who falls and at some point takes angels with him who become demonic spirits uh, like himself and 
the war begins. You know, opposition begins and plays out you know, throughout history. So there was a day when the angels of God came to present themselves before the Lord, reporting in, whether it's warrior class angels, whether it's guardian angels, and we can look at Daniel uh, in, in its depiction of angels where there's actually war in, in, the, in the spiritual dimension, which is beyond our time and space dimension. It does trickle down to us, but it's a spiritual thing. And, uh, and then, of course, Satan challenges God, challenges his wisdom, his opinion of the worth of Job, and tries to say, look, the only reason why he's a good man is because you bless everything he does. Okay. Now, if all you have in your Bible is Job 1, 6 to 12, what theology can you form about suffering? About what? Suffering. This is all you get. That's all your Bible says. What theology can you derive about suffering? <laughs> Are you saying it's inevitable? <laughs> What's interesting, Amy, and you, you kind of, yeah, you, you, you're quick to the, to the point. God agrees. God agrees. Okay, game on. You can do all these things, but you can't kill him. Like, yeah, it's like God's provoking something. Yeah. Yeah. And so when you when you read through Job, you get these you get this language of the authority of God. It's so beyond human comprehension. And when you get to the point where God is actually confronting Job, it's like God gets his hands on his hips and he bends down and said, Where were you when I framed the dawn? Where were you when I made the deer to to give birth in the forest. Where were you when I set a boundary for the ocean so it wouldn't transgress the shoreline? Where were you when I did all that? Yeah, it's just like authority beyond we can, you know, we can imagine. And then finally, in Job chapter 42, Job says, you know what? I hate myself for all, of that, I, all that I've said. It's, it's the shame hits him so deeply. He goes, Boy, I should have shut up a long time ago and I hate myself for everything I said. Boom, he is whipped. He is beat. But he stayed faithful. And then, of course, the reward, the reward story, you know, at the end, which is just absolutely amazing. So one thing that I've thought about this is that we don't know that God didn't do this with other people as well. Oh, absolutely. Just the one that he chose to record or how about this one? God has done it for a man named Jay Greenland. Yeah. Absurd things that make no sense to test your metal. So this is giving you a way out. Put this in the context of this. It's like God poked him in the eye and then fussed at him for reacting. You know, where were you when I made the dawn? I can do what I want. I was a kid and I bought my first 10 speed bike. And my daddy just thought, you know, didn't have bikes ought to have fenders on, right? So he didn't, I didn't want to do it. So I actually went on a mission trip one time and I was going into the 
And when I came back, I was like, wait, Daddy didn't put fenders on your 10-speed, which I is not so, cool. I was so angry, and I took off on my bike, right, and I was muttering and blah, 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 and I was just a total jerk when I got back and all that. And then, and then my dad said to me, well, you just can't come home and act like that and expect not to. And so they pulled some privileges, probably took my bike away. But I've always thought that was really unfair. But it's not unlike what happened here. Yeah, and look what it exposed in you. Yeah. Two little fenders, probably that long yeah, on a 10-speed yeah. bike. I, I can see it. And look what it brought out in you. Something that was in there all not, along. Not good. Not good, yeah. And my daddy did it because he loved me and he thought that's what my bicycle needed. And if you ride a 10 speed without fenders, what happens to your backside in the rain? You get a strip right up your back of mud and dirt and grime and water. At least you and I have ridden, we've, we've, we've seen this stuff. What's a fender? Little, little covering, little shroud. Like in your bike, it's a big wall. You have a big one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if all we had is Job 1, and we were going to try to do some theology with it, we would have to say, you know what? God has power. God knows how to pick a fight. God's not afraid of anybody. <laughs> and he has the authority to test anything, anyone in his creation at any time. And when he does, he is absolutely righteous in all that he's done. That's beautiful and comforting until you're on the receiving end of it. Then it's hard. And you become Job. And you get a piece of bloke, broken potsherd and you scrape your wounds and you weep and you struggle and you question why. What did I do to deserve this? Now, here's the beautiful thing. If we could zoom back out and see all the New Testament, what's going to happen in the end for the believer? We're going to experience our own Job 42. And we'll be given farms and riches and families and treasures. So profound, Madison, that Paul writes, I can't see, ear can't even hear it, the mind can't conceive it, the heart wouldn't even believe it if you could realize what God is preparing for those that love him. It's going to be incredible. When we have our own Job 42, it's going to happen to us. Amy's going to happen to you. It's going to be amazing. All right, let's keep digging. Who is the enemy? How about this one, Luke 4. Now Jesus, full of the Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days when they had ended and he was hungry. So I bring up that little snippet just to say that the devil is immediately being presented. Whatever this guy is, temptation is a critical part of what he does. So that's an allusion to strategy and, and warfare, uh, Jay. But whatever this thing is, there's something about a sales pitch that's, that he's really, that's an important thing that he does. Because you see it in Genesis 3, right? And you see it in Job 1. And, and that whatever this guy is, there's something about a sales pitch a concept of deception that is critical to his nature. In fact, look at what John 8, 44 says. By the way, Jesus is confronting Pharisees and Sadducees and lawyers and scribes. He's confronting them. And, he, and they're accusing Jesus. And he goes, oh, really? 
You are your father, the devil. You're saying, I do things from, through the power of Beelzebub and cast out demons. Uh-uh. You guys are the ones that are Satan. And you want to do the desires of your father. Whatever he is, whatever Satan is, he is a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. So we're getting at the issue, who is Satan? Who's the enemy? And based on John 8, 44, what can you say about his nature? He's a liar. Exactly. <laughs> in fact, um, Jay, when he, whenever he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature. That is a critical idea, and I use it all the time in therapy. It's called ontology is the word, and it means you have the ability to understand the nature of a thing. You know that a cat goes in the cat column, right? And a dog goes in the dog column. You have ontological problems if you expect the dog to meow or the cat to bark. Okay, ontology is what is the nature of it? What is it? In Arkansas, the word ontology is this. It is what it is. That's, that's Arkansas ontology. So, and in the uh, milieu of which we now live, uh, ontodo- onto ontology is not a good thing because we're not allowed to speak. We're not allowed to say boy to boy. You and connected the dots right. very well. Very well, yeah. We are denying ontology, which is reality. We're not even allowed to describe reality for what it really is. Yeah. It's all a lie. And how's that, how's that for deception? Yeah, exactly. Wow. I mean, to the point now where you can be fired. Yes. You think about the consequences. Not yes. You're not allowed yeah. to say it. There in Canada, other places, yep. for preaching the truth from the gospel, yeah. that yeah. marriage between a man and a woman, you're yep. accused of hate speech. Now, there was a, an article recently on Fox News about a student. I, I don't recall this, the place, Philadelphia, something, that was kicked out of school because the student spoke up in class and said there are only two genders. And the kid was uh, suspended from school. And I think, I think permanently. And they're, they're legally taking action against the school, which is what they should do. They should, yeah. So, okay. No. Also, Chris. Yeah, go ahead. Just to kind of just to kind of simplify, uh, Satan is the polar opposite of God. Mm-hmm. God can create; Satan cannot, but he corrupts what has been created. Yes, he corrupts. That is so good, David. That is so good. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's let me let, let me change up this this format here. So, let's look at that. Um, I want you to see this again. These three texts, okay. Isaiah 14, Genesis 3, Ezekiel 28. Who's the enemy? Satan. Satan. Describe him. He's a liar. Liar, okay. Just from these texts, what would you say? His nature is lying. Deception. Deception. Mm-hmm. Untruth. Mm-hmm. Trickery. His mm-hmm. first deception is his yeah, that an ego, a pride thing kicks in. Yes, and yes, that's so good, Sloan, yeah. That pride becomes his downfall. 
which leads to an amazing teaching from James chapter 4 that God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Yeah. And the cherub is supposed to embody humility and cover. But instead, pride sits in. So, so this is a creature of great pride, of great influence, of great beauty. Uh, intellectually brilliant. This is one of the... It has been said, but, and again, we're, we're putting, we're stitching together ideas. I know the evidence is slim, but stitching together the idea that this is the highest created being. Yeah. This isn't just a regular old working class angel, you know, on the farm. This is, this is the most beautifully created cherub ever. Yeah. So since we're stitching together, In times, is Satan beautiful again? Is that part of it? Is that the Antichrist? Well, okay, you beat me to it. The Antichrist is this person who's so attractive, all the nations fall for it. So it's like, yes, he's still, he's still doing it. He's still doing it. Yes, sir. There's something that also is in. Proverbs six sixteen that really thought was really interesting. Okay, uh, and it's uh, Proverbs six sixteen which describes what God basically describes the devil. Okay, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to Him. Okay, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, mm-hmm. a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil. A false witness who pours out lies and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Mm-hmm. Mm, that's so good, David. That is remember, remember, demonic. Remember pride pride is the first, really was considered the first sin. Mm-hmm. And pride is really, in a way, the root of all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Because of pride, you can, be, you can be afraid because of pride. Yes. But you can also be mad because of pride. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the root of all the things that are the opposite of what God is. Yes, that, that is so good. Yes, David. Okay, anybody else? Who's the enemy based on these texts? The devil. Yep. Yep. Okay. And then how about this? Who's the enemy based on that? Okay. Yep. What about him? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He seeks to destroy. Mm-hmm. What's that? Song? He seeks to destroy. Yeah, he seeks to destroy, which is John ten ten. Yeah, the thief comes to still kill, destroy. Yeah. I think it also points out his limits as a created being because he can't be everywhere at once. He's walking around the earth, so he's not. Yes. He's not omnipresent. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's really good. Thank you for picking up on that. That's but, really good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. God could limit himself because he's yeah. God. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or, or he, he still can be everywhere and yet present himself as walking about in the garden too. Yeah. Yeah. So based on Job, anything else? Satan's smart. Can he banter with God? Can he argue and challenge? And, and... He's foolish and fearless. 
Yep, absolutely. Arrogant. Cunning. Cunning. Yes, good good word. Very smart. Very smart. Yep, exactly. Okay, and what about this one, these two here? Who is the enemy? Mm-hmm. 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 Ontologically, who is he? His true nature. What is it? Fallen angel. Mm-hmm. Good, Maddie. Keep going. Mm-hmm. There is something murderous there. Uh, Jay, how much of a truth, let's take, let's take a single idea of truth. How much of a lie can be added to the, you've got to subtract a little bit of truth to add a little bit of a lie. How much lie does it take to destroy the truth? Um, half truth, is a half truth dangerous? It's, 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 so so dangerous. it's a, a lie. He, take, he takes the truth and twists it. So a half truth is actually a whole lie. Yes. There you go. And that's exactly what happened in Genesis 3. What's that? You take the truth and bend it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. A partial truth results in a whole lie. Absolutely. And boy, Satan is good at it. Really good. I, I like what uh, talking about the, uh, speaking from his true nature and that the, the lie is his. English is my native tongue. The lie is his native Exactly. And, you know, basically, the old joke, how do you know when Satan's lying is literally? Because yeah. everything he says is a lie. But again, he's using truth to tell a lie. Right, right. That is, that is so good. That is so good. So, okay. Does Satan have lips? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, evidently, he, he can talk. So, um, this is good. Well, we're gonna, we'll continue this part and continue to dig into how do we get at who the enemy is. Um, and and it'll, it'll be revelatory for us. So, certainly will. So, okay, anybody, questions at this well, point? Just, back to the, to the point that ontologically and everything else, even when we know that this is Satan, because we're not free to say it, or we feel constrained not to say it because of the consequence, I don't know where I'm going with that thought, but it, it's like we're kind of frozen because we, we're not allowed. It's not that we don't see the truth, or maybe, but we're just not allowed to speak it, or we try to convince ourselves that it's not really as evil as it looks. Well, he's so full of tricks. Right. Right. He's a right. Deceiver. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Here's a good example of, of uh, satanic activity in the Roe v. Wade arguments. <clears throat> what do you think will be presented as the core logical, re- logical reason why abortion should be federally uh, lawful and federally funded? What is like the main argument that says, we got to do it, and here's why? Uh, yes, but but in terms of keep going. What else? Women's choice, women's health. Yes, but there's more that, and that's a powerful one, by the way. But 
an instance of rape and incest. Now, do you know what, what is it? And it's argued even less than, and so it's interesting in the horrific reality that that does happen. Okay, it really does. In fact, some say it's 1%. The horrific reality that happening, that will be the principal argument used 100% of the time to justify abortion. When Lisa, who is very, very quiet, will tell you this is not about uh, healthcare, it's about population control. And if you know anything about Margaret Sanger, you realize abortion is literally a strategy by the federal government, by Democrats, to deal with, quote, unquote, and I'm quoting history, to deal with the black problem. That's what Margaret Sanger was on about. Yeah. Highest form of racism in U.S. history is the work of Margaret Sanger and her eugenics policy modeled after Hitler's to deal with the black problem. By the way, which is always told in half-truths as well. Yeah, so you think that, that Satan's alive and well in the United States of America? Absolutely. So here's the good news. Uh, oral arguments are being heard by the Supreme Court about abortion. Possible reversal. And kicking it to the states, which I think would be a tremendous victory. That would be a tremendous victory. So, All right, we're getting at it. We're getting at it, you know. And on the abortion question, it's interesting that all through history, Satan has gone after the babies. He's just always with them. In modern times, he started yep. with women more. But and before yep. it was all the babies before, you know, two years or younger. Yep. Whatever, so he's always gone. Always. Because he's not omniscient. He doesn't know which one is going to be his worst enemy. Yeah, yeah. So and he heard that there was a prophecy, Genesis 3. God said it. The seed of the woman. And he's been all about abortion ever since he heard that. God say that. The seed of the woman. Um, when I was in, uh, you know, I was counseling years ago. I had a client, a Navy SEAL. And, uh, and I've had a lot of soldiers through the years. And one of the things that most messes with the psyche of a soldier, or even a cop, by the way, particularly soldiers, is when they can't tell who the enemy is. And yet, the, whoever, whatever it is, it's firing at them. And how could a, tr- a man, a trained soldier, use his weapon against a child? How could you do that? That's insane, right? Or a female, a female. Uh, those in the mind of a soldier who are non-combatants and that that was uh, that that strategy has been used in Vietnam, it's used in uh, Afghanistan and other places where Muslims commonly stage military supplies and operations in schools, in 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 places where children and non-combatants live. Oh, there's also something else too. When I was uh, when I was in the military myself, I was actually going to go to see uh, if I could join with the, the sniper division area. Until I found out one of the things you have to do, the if there is a person that you have to remove, let's say a leader of a country or something, who is the thing? Who or what? Who or what do you aim at and take out to cause a distraction to get a clear shot? 
Mm-hmm. You shoot the child. Mm-hmm. And that makes it to where it's a clear shot. And I, and I was like, after that, I said, nope. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. The I, ethi- I can't do that. The ethics of war are absolutely horrific. And, um, and the whole reason why I'm bringing this up is because if we don't know who the enemy is or we're confused about the enemy, okay, we're half beat. They got us. And, uh, and I've had soldiers who were fired upon and suffered PTSD because they couldn't react because the person approaching them with weapons is a non-combatant in their minds. You don't fire on a non-combatant, even though they're shooting at you. Boy, that is such a depiction of what Satan does. If he can confuse his identity and cause us to doubt who he is, and, and Sloan and, and Jay, he becomes an angel of light. You can't spot the enemy in a crowd, you know? Couldn't spot him in a crowd of Christians. Why? Because he looks and acts like a Christian. What is the greatest lie ever told? What's that? That that Satan is not real. Oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. It's just, he's a myth. Sure, sure. Or if you follow C.S. Lewis, who's a brilliant writer, C.S. Lewis in his book Screw Tape, Screw Tape Letters. What did he? What was the big strategy of Satan in the Screw Tape Letters? Yeah, but. Teach, teach man, teach the human that he has time. Lots and lots of time. Don't try to prove to him that we don't exist. He knows we do. Teach him that he's got time. There's no urgency to follow God. He's got time. And boy, that's true. I think C.S. Lewis was super wise on that one. So, okay. Uh, and when we get to deeper into the study, it's going to be exciting when we see... Um, the significance of the Lord's Supper. Uh, that, that's something that's going to be beautiful. So, all right, I want to read this, and we're going to pray and take the Lord's Supper. So, Paul writes, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, how about that for an act of deception, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body. My body is being broken by a deceiver which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let me pray. Abba, Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you that you rescued us from the thief who comes to steal and kill and destroy. Thank you for this gift. Life through the death of your son. This is the gospel. Lord, we believe and we confess Jesus as Lord. In his name, amen. Let's take the Lord's Supper and move.